Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and today we're talking with Tim Challies. Tim is an elder at Grace Fellowship Church in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, co-founder of Cruciform Press, author of numerous books including The Next Story, Do More, Better, the Visual Theology Series, and others. And of course, Tim is the godfather of evangelical blogging. Tim, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, so you're, where are you talking to us from? I'm calling you, you you're, you're traveling, but you're someplace interesting, I feel like. <laughs> I'm at Muskoka Bible Center, which is a good old Baptist camp a couple hours north of Toronto. Okay. And uh, I tend to speak here every two summers, and just throughout the course of the summer, they bring in different speakers. Everybody does a week, and uh, yeah, it's a place I really enjoy coming and speaking over the course of the week. Yeah, that's awesome. But you've been, um, are, are you finished now? You, you've been on kind of a, how long, a, a worldwide trek for a book project, yeah? Yeah, yeah, I went around the world. Mostly last year I finished up a little bit in early 2019. But, uh, yeah, we touched 24, 25 different countries over the course of a year, uh, all of it looking for historical objects through which we hope we could tell the story of the Christian faith in a, a book and a documentary project. So that's all well underway now. Uh, the, the writing and the production is well underway, and hoping to have a book out in around March of 2020. Man, that's awesome. That's great. Is, is that... I also ate McDonald's in 21 countries. <laughs> last year, so. Does it taste different? <laughs> a little bit. Every country has its peculiarities, but it's pretty much the fries are the same anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I remember um, we had a friend who moved from Texas to Florida, and there was some kind of burger they had at the McDonald's where he lived in, I think in the, in the Houston area, that was like the Big Tex or the Texas Burger or something. And he was upset that the Florida McDonald's didn't have the Big Tex Burger. <laughs> yeah, they're regionalized. We had people who moved to Toronto from the American South, and one day they just jumped in their car and they drove. It's around two and a half hours to get to Erie, Pennsylvania, which is the nearest Chick-fil-A. So okay. Oh, my they word. They had to drive just to get their fix. That's, you know, it's good, but I don't know if it's two and a half hours good, to be honest with you. No. <laughs> no I think it was that day where if you wear a cow outfit, okay. you get your burger free, too. So I think they did all that. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you're taking a whole family, I mean, that's, you know, that's, uh, yeah, that's a considerable amount if you've got four or five people with you. Um, yeah. Well, so... I want to ask you about blogging, and I want to talk, of course, about the subject you emailed me about that prompted my wanting to have you on the podcast. But I want to ask you first about your health, if you don't mind uh, giving an update. Um, Some of our listeners maybe haven't seen or read your recent videos or posts about it. So if you could just kind of uh, give us kind of a rundown of what's going on. Yeah, weird things started happening a couple of years ago where my hands started failing me. They started getting uh, exceedingly sore, and we kind of chalked it up at the time to just some sort of repetitive motion type of disorder. I do, after all, spend a lot of my life typing and tapping. Yeah. Um, but it seems like it's maybe something different from that. We've not been able to track down a cause, working with a couple of different doctors and specialists. And so my hands are getting worse. It's getting harder and harder to type. Um So, yeah, just trying to adapt to life where I can't produce the quantity of material and even the quality of material I'd really like. So it's been an interesting little setback for somebody who's uh, really committed to writing and really enjoys it. Yeah, it's been it's been very odd. What what sort of workarounds have you have you been using? Because, I mean, you're still producing uh, content. So I'm wondering how 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 are you making that happen? It's just a, a lot of pain, I'm assuming. 
Yeah, that's basically it. I've cut back a little bit. So I still post something every day. I used to do five articles a week. Now I'm just doing three and just posting the Alec Art stuff on the alternating days. And uh, other than that, yeah, it just really hurts. I'm trying to use voice a little bit more, doing some of the voice dictation. But that's that's not a great solution. It sounds very easy. Yeah. But to actually completely change the way you communicate like that uh, is actually very difficult. Okay. I mean, is it... And the software struggles with okay. Canadian accents. You can find it right in the small print. It has trouble with Canadian accents, so that doesn't make it any easier. Oh, that's interesting. So I wondered if that was, if the issue was the software or just having to adjust and speaking aloud in the same way that you would, um, you know, quote-unquote, speak through the keyboard. Is that, is there kind of a learning curve there? Yeah, it's, it's, the software is very difficult to use. So it does quite a good job listening and putting text down into a word processor, but actually manipulating the text is a miserable process using the software. Mm. It's very, very hard to tell a computer to take this piece of text and change it in this way or move it over to there. And, you know, you're a writer that editing is yeah. 90% of the work. Getting the ideas out isn't that hard most of the time. It's refining them and making them worth reading. Yeah. Uh, so that's been the part that's been the real challenge, is just manipulating text, working with it, and making it something I could actually uh, be okay with putting before the public. Yeah. Well, uh, we've been praying for you. We hope that um, you'll you'll have some answers soon in terms of what it is that's going on and, and a plan of attack that uh, is helpful and, and healing yeah, for you. Um, and, you know, part of the concern, especially for... Uh, someone like me who has been sort of reading you for a long time. I've been trying to kind of do the math on, I know you started before this, but I think I became somewhat aware of you in probably 2003 or 2004 and um, you know, just been following you for that long. So, um, yeah, we, you know, those of us who've been around the block a little bit, we take a little bit more personally when something like this happens to one of our one of our OGs, I guess, <laughs> I guess, you, I guess you'd say. Um, and so I wonder, this is something, you know, I feel somewhat nostalgic. Um, Joe Carter, who um, is an editor at the Gospel Coalition, and um, he's kind of a journeyman editor and writer. Uh, he's been around at least that long or longer um, as well. I remember him blogging back at uh, what used to be called the Evangelical Outpost. Uh, yeah. And then he had sort of an evangelical portal through First Things that he recruited a few of us to write for. And um, he he reached out a year or so ago because he, he he wanted to put together sort of I think kind of an oral history, um, a short oral history of of the Christian blogosphere, and I'm really intrigued by that. wasn't able to participate fully in that, um, but just as we kind of kick the can around a little bit for those who may be new uh, to the scene or they're just younger listeners, I wonder if you could you know kind of give us a short rundown of how and when Christian blogging started? What was it like in the early days? How did you get in involved? And uh, what you know, how has the scene changed? That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I remember a ton about the early days, at least speaking when I talked to Joe or to Justin Taylor or some of the others. Yeah. I think we all just kind of bring up these memories, Timmy Brister, some of those guys who were around <laughs> from the very beginning. But I think blogs really became a thing around 2000, 2001, 2002, somewhere in there is where weblog as words started entering discourse, quickly got shortened to blog. Um, but it was essentially just people having a voice, little people having a voice. So uh, until that time, it was really the old media and the very formal mainstream media that controlled the news. That's all there was. Um, some people would put together little email blasts or something. 
but suddenly we had this technology where anyone could go online and develop a voice, and lo and behold, many did. And I think that was right at the same time, not the least bit coincidentally, that this young restless reform thing started happening, as it was called back then. And uh, I think the early blogosphere was really a lot of those people who were part of that movement just working things through. And so my early days were digesting purpose-driven life and passion of the Christ and some of those things and yeah. trying to interpret them as as I was now looking through Reformed eyes. I've been raised in the Reformed tradition, but it sort of walked away from it. And so uh, interpreting those things and just, I, I think the blogosphere is really one of the, the keys to the early growth of that movement, because there's nowhere else it was really being written about or discussed. Blogs were where all that was going on. So those early days, I remember them as being a lot of fun. This was before social media was mean, at least to the same degree. You could say bad things, like stupid things, and people wouldn't throw you under the bus for it. There'd just be back-and-forth discussion, and I found those days really a lot of, a lot of fun. Yeah, you know, um, you know, I do remember sort of, you know, flame wars and trolls and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, but it did, in general, feel more like a fraternity or, or community. And it also felt less tribal. And I wonder if it was because, there, you know, there wasn't um, – we didn't have, you know, sort of the microblogging yet. Or maybe it just wasn't popular. But, like, you know, of course, Twitter wasn't around. Uh, Facebook was, I think, at least at that time, reserved only for college students. Uh, I don't know what year that launched, but um, you know, the comment sections were places um, where you could actually find conversation, <laughs> and yeah. and you could you know, kind of hash out ideas, and you, you would have sort of you know devoted readers uh, from all over the world, but also from different traditions, and you know, there wasn't, um, at least as far as I remember. Any idea that if I don't agree with you, um, a I can't talk to you, or b I have to hate you, um, or I can you know, I can only keep to my kind, or I've got to be constantly campaigning for you to, you know, join my you know Baptist circles or or, or anything like that. It just it just felt different, and I wonder if it was just because it was somewhat new, and so we kind of had the you know stars in our uh, you know, not stars in our eyes, but just. Yeah, it just felt new and fresh and and, and that sort of thing. Um, it did. It yeah. did. And there was, uh, there, were, there was some tribalism, we could say, because you remember the emerging church was oh, sure. emerging at the same time as Young Wrestles Reform. So there was some back and forth between those two parties and guys like Mark Driscoll, kind of which way is he going to go, which party is he going <laughs> to join in, and, and those sorts of things were happening. Um, but I think that there was a, not as big a downside in that you could have flame wars back and forth, people being harsh or mean with one another, but you didn't have the same kind of fear that if this goes wrong, I'm going to be thrown under the bus and nobody will ever read me again. I will be disowned. I will be deplatformed, yeah. as you do now. So something has become really mean now uh, that didn't exist. There's a different kind of meanness or cruelty in social media now than there was before, for sure. Yeah, and I think you just touched on something. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't think we have the time really to explore it fully, but th the rise of some of the ancillary platform uh, or the institutional or, and organizational structures that have come uh, in the last 10, 15 years or so have complicated further that sort of um, the consequences, right? So, um, yeah, it could be that somebody might not read you anymore. They just wouldn't like you. Now people who are trying to write online and publish online are thinking not just about you know, publishing deals but organizational or institutional connections 
um, you know, feeling the fear of being on the outs from one tribe or another. And, and, and that just didn't seem to be really at, at play then. There were systems of authority, um, uh, or there are systems of authority now that, that, that didn't really seem to be, um, you know, fear drivers, I guess, uh, in those days. Where do you think yeah. blogging's going? Um, you know, it's obviously changed. And I think you have a concern about the genre itself or, or just the format. Yeah. So back in the day, there were no young wrestlers reformed, if you will, institutions. So Gospel Coalition did not exist. Together for the Gospel did not exist. Those all followed. Those did not precede and create this movement. Those all followed the movement and then tried to coalesce it in different ways. And so you remember early in the early days of Together for the Gospel, it was a conference, but it maybe made some brief attempts to be a little bit more to kind of do something between the every two-year conferences. But then Gospel Coalition really came along and tried to, I'd say, organize the movement, put some parameters on the movement and, and all of that, and yeah. maybe try and own it in a certain sense. Um, I think really by setting parameters and identifying certain leaders within it. Um, so the, the landscape now is very different because it really did begin organically. I'm, I'm quite convinced of it. I don't think there was any driver behind it. The institutionalization came later, and it's now just a fact of it. Yeah. And so what we see now in the blogosphere is more and more people writing for a few big platforms rather than writing their own blogs, which means we've gone right back to where we began, which is, Back when we began, it was Christianity Today and World and a few other uh, publications that gave you a voice into the reform space. Other than that, you you had no voice. You had to go through those gatekeepers. Blogs came along and allowed everybody to circumvent the gatekeepers, which was part of the joy of it. It's the way the, the, the conversations could go far and wide. But today, I think we're kind of back where we began, where there's now an editorial process between what people want to say and whether they'll actually say it or not. <laughs> and that tends to reside in desiring God, together for the gospel, for the church, and so on, where people are um, wanting that on their resume. They're wanting to, rather than go through all the trouble of starting their own blog and investing all the time, they just want to write a, the occasional article, and it's one of those sites, and have it published there, which makes total sense, but it really does radically change the blogosphere. It's because I think, really, a blog is defined by the lack of gatekeeping. Yeah. Uh, well... You know, does the sheer number of people trying to contribute complicate that? Because, you know, like you, I, I do remember the day before blogs hit where, you know, those of us who were trying to write for the marketplace or, you know, just even seeing writing as a ministry or, or, or an extension of, uh, you know, ministry to the local church, writing for the church, um, you know, we had those sort of print, you know, gatekeepers. And then blogging came along, and you're right. It was like now, you know, now I can actually – Right for the people, but there weren't a whole lot of us, you know, doing it. So the, you know, there wasn't as much noise, um, at, you know, at least in terms of the evangelical blogosphere. And so it, it felt easier to find quality writing. Um, I mean, I credit a lot of, you know, sort of where you know my ministry has gone publicly uh, with those early days of blogging, getting noticed by you know guys like Ed Stetzer or. Um, you know, working for Docent Research Group and those sorts of things. It was blogging that opened those doors for me to make those early connections. That's harder and harder to do today um, simply because we have, so, you know, everyone's online and everyone has something to say or at least thinks that they do. 
And so, you know, what are your thoughts on the, you know, the gatekeepers now, the gospel coalitions and the desiring gods and, and everybody else as sort of our means of, um, you know, having a filter, right? So if someone's published by those sites, you have a reasonable, it's not, it's not air, you know, airtight, but you have a reasonable um, you know, basis for belief that I'm going to read something good or something sound at least. Yeah, and that's great, but and I think there's benefit to that. That said, um, when when things began, when you and I began blogs, we did not have career aspirations. There was no yeah. nobody was talking about platform. Nobody was seeing the blogosphere as a step to something else. We were just doing it because it was fun. It was a new medium, and we. I don't think most of us had higher expectations. Sure, at the beginning, it wasn't that hard to get a book deal if you could show that you had some following. But I think most of us were doing it just to be bloggers. Yeah. Today, people have been told that blogging is one step to something bigger, to platform, to getting on the conference circuit, and to getting a book deal and all that. And so people are approaching it very differently. This is just a step they need to go through. And now people are realizing they can circumvent that step by just sending articles into Desiring God. Pretty much every book you get now, you'll see on the back cover, this person has written for Desiring God and the Gospel Coalition, which is totally fine. Nothing wrong with that at all. But it's just really altered what blogs are uh, versus what they were. And I think there was a kind of joy or magic to it when this was all it was. I'm just writing online. People are corresponding, interacting with me. Uh, other blogs are writing about my blog and just kind of interacting, engaging on those ideas. There was a real joy there. Uh, the professionalization of blogs uh, really changed them a whole lot when we started to have higher aspirations. And um, then also when they began to become collected by some of the bigger ones, like um, Gospel Coalition, Desire and God, and so on. Yeah, yeah. you know, there was a, a window of time, and it, it sounds quaint now, but there was a window of time where someone being a blogger, that in and of itself was, you know, something that you would denote in in a bio, right? So this person is a, uh, you know, they're uh, a local pastor and a blogger. or <laughs> And that was somehow notable because it was different and unique or it was seen as, you know, somewhat cutting edge. Um, but a lot of us got in. Uh, I mean, I remember the way, you know, how I started blogging, which was I was in an email discussion group with some friends. We were just, would you know, read books together and and discuss the books chapter by chapter over email. And one day, one of uh, our guys who you know was more tech uh, inclined said, "Hey, we should start a web blog." <laughs> and the rest of us said, "Well, what's that?" And he said, "Well, it's yeah. it's like what we're already doing, but we we put it on the internet, and then other people can read it. And if they want to join the discussion, they can." And so, we you know we started a blog called the Thinklings, and it, it began as basically. Um, you know the you know the seven of us having these discussions about books publicly, and anyone who wanted to jump in, and then it just became, you know, back then you're blogging about really mundane things because it was just such a new medium. Um, but I have to ask you because you said you know, so I believe you that you didn't get into blogging to build a platform or anything like that. But I I remember you always three steps ahead of us in terms of uh, you know traffic and all those sorts of things, and I feel like it was you who reached out once to us. Uh, to the Thinklings and said, um, hey, your blog roll is way too long because uh, this is the way people used to find blogs. So if you're a younger listener, you yep. probably have no concept of what I'm talking about. But back in the day, we didn't have subscription services or at least people weren't using them. Um, the way you found good blogs is by going to blogs you liked and they would have a blog roll. It's all the different links that they recommended, uh, sometimes friends, sometimes just people they admired. 
And I, I remember, Tim, you saying uh, your blog world is way too long and something along the lines of every link you have devalues every other link you have and um, that we should exchange links and shorten our blog roles. And so, I mean, you were thinking strategically uh, about the medium. Yeah. Yeah, I have no memory of that, but it sounds like something <laughs> I might have done. Um, <laughs> I totally made it up. I just made it up. <laughs> <laughs> and you're absolutely right that back in the day, a long list of links would devalue every link, and so it was better to keep it concise. So yeah. that probably sounds like something that happened. Um, yeah, I did think strategically, and I think part of it was the challenge, especially in the early days. I was very driven by numbers. I just wanted to see numbers go up, and so yeah. I was prone to involve myself in strategies um, that would grow those numbers. And um, I, I made a change pretty early on where I realized that was just becoming idolatrous and there was far more joy in giving away traffic than in gaining it. Mm. Um, and so that's where the a la carte and other things came from. I started to really try and showcase other sites and really try to become diligent at taking the traffic I felt the Lord had given me and just giving that away to other people. And that was like a huge change that came over the site and something I think in the end really strengthened it and I think made it better. But, um, yeah, I think strategically I, I, I was in the early days more focused on being a typical blogger. And then I think I started making some more distinctly Christian, uh, <laughs> I'd even say gospel centered type, um, changes and, um, strategies. And, um, I think that was a, very helpful thing to me and something that probably saved me from burning out and just becoming gross at blogging. <laughs> well, I think, you know, just over the arc of, um, you know, your your blogging history, and you started when? Was it like 2001, 2002? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, I mean, from then to now, so 16, 17 years, um, you, you've developed a reputation from the early days of all the book reviews to what you were publishing with Cruciform and the book summaries um, and those sorts of things, and to the a la carte feature, um, I think where when people think Tim Challies, I think they're generally thinking a reliable a reliable guide. You, you have developed a, a reputation over the last 15 years in, in, in how you blog and what you blog as a trusted source um, of, you know, how do I think about this new book that's out? Or how do I think about this, this subject? So there's a, a level of discernment, I think, that you provide that, a, the, well, the Internet in general just isn't known for any, anymore. You, you don't think Internet discernment um, much anymore uh, in terms of the spiritual discipline. Uh, but for, you know, f when you think of Chowley's, I think, you know, if, if we can use the word brand, um, you know, the brand brings to mind reliability and sol you know solidity and um yeah I, I think discernment so whatever you were doing in the early days to today i think y your goal of uh you know giving away and being a service to the church has certainly um yeah proven fruitful at least it has uh, for me and, and and those i know um so yeah, you, you mentioned early um in the introduction here um, that you, you know, your blogging pace has changed a little bit. I, rem I remember you, um, you know, previously making uh, the commitment to produce or, or publish at least every day. Was that Sunday through Saturday? That was every day, yep. Yeah. So, so what was the rationale behind that? Uh, I, I started that just as a personal challenge. In the early days, I was just 
blogging very occasionally. I got really sloppy with it. It would be once a week and then once a month. And uh, so one day just decided my, to challenge myself to do it every day for a year. And then if I didn't do that, I would just quit and uh, find another hobby. And so I set the <laughs> challenge after a year, realized I'd really enjoyed it, so just kind of rolled it over and have kept it up ever since. No, that's great. All right, let's take a moment for a coffee break and hear a word from our hosts at Midwestern Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry contact. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu mdiv today. Okay, we're back. We're speaking with Tim Challies, and we haven't really even gotten to the real reason that I wanted you to come on the podcast, so I, th- I think we'll go that direction now. Uh, you emailed me uh, a couple of weeks back and asked me basically what? What, what was the gist of your, of your question or your, or, or your comments? Yeah, now, now you're making it sound like I was just angling to get on your podcast. No, but, no, no, no. Um, yeah, so I, I'll give the background. You emailed me to ask me you know, uh, or, yeah. you know, certain questions about a phenomenon um, yep. to have a conversation. And I said, hey, let's come on my podcast and talk about this because I think it would be good. <laughs> so, yes, that's exactly how it happened. Yep. Right. So I have been following this gospel-centered thing for a while. <laughs> um, you know, there was, there was the Young Restless Reformed. That was a great name for a book. It was a bad name for a movement. Yeah, okay. So that eventually got changed into New Calvinism. Um, which kind of became a pejorative over time. And eventually I started hearing gospel-centered to describe whatever this thing is that I believe the Lord has been behind over the last few years with its ebbs and its flows, its highs and its lows. But I started hearing a lot about being gospel-centered or gospel-driven. I started to observe over time that pretty quickly there was a gospel-centered or gospel-driven everything. And so it's like suddenly it became a marker of identity, and there were book deals to be had for the first person who could come up with gospel-centered pet ownership, (laughs) gospel-centered parenting, gospel-centered whatever. And I think we just sort of covered the whole gamut. We got a gospel-centered everything, and then kind of ran out. There was nothing left to do. Um, But one of the lingering effects of that, I think, I'm just seeing a lot of the word gospel being used now, but it's being used in a way I'm not sure is really, A, meaningful, and B, has real historic precedent. Okay. And so, yeah, so I'm loath to give specific examples, because I don't want to, like, out anyone here. I'm not mad at anyone. I'm, I'm not, I don't think this is the worst thing that's ever happened in Christendom, but I'm just seeing a lot of the word gospel, and I'm wondering if it's being used now not to refer to the actual gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's, if it's actually being used just as much as a marker of identity, as people want to buy gospel stuff. So I put gospel out there, people will buy it. Yeah, so I, I think you're on to something, as I, as I think I said in, in my initial response to you, because I'm noticing that phenomenon not so much in the publishing world, and, and maybe I would if I read as many books as you do, 
Um, but yeah, when I see you know gospel centered, what have you, on a book title, um, I, I'm assuming you know if I haven't read the book that the person who's writing it isn't just trying to kind of trigger a tribal identity or hit into a market. Um, I mean, you are trying to do that with any book, really. I mean, all titling um, is 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 driven largely by the marketers um, at, at publishing companies. So um, you, usually the author and, and the editor aren't the only voices or even the dominant voices in, in picking a title. But I'm always assuming that the content actually is gospel-centered um, or, or else it, that wouldn't be there. And yet, just to kind of amen, um, I think, your gist, something that I notice in traveling to different churches and, and speaking to pastors at conferences and things like that, they use gospel-centered or gospel as an adjective um, to refer to things that are not gospel-centered, you know, just as you, um, you know, were suggesting um, is, is the potential danger there. So just as, a, you know, as an example, if I'm talking about gospel centrality, uh, if, I'm, if I haven't fleshed it out, you know, what the implications of it, what the main principles of the paradigm of gospel centrality are, um, I'll have people who think because they have an invitation at the end of their sermon that they're gospel-centered or, or they're using it to identify with a particular tribe. We want to be a gospel-centered church. They'll put it on their website, and they don't really know what that means in terms of the paradigm or in terms of the, you know, the biblical model um, for the church. So I think you're onto something, but you know, I'm I'm curious, and you don't have to name names. Um, you know, I don't want you to feel self-conscious about, um, you know, not naming other people. But obviously, I've written at least you know, 100 books that have the word gospel in the title. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I'm not afraid to talk to you about it. Um, it is, your, is it just a level of concern, or are, are you actually seeing material uh, under these titles that you think doesn't actually carry significant gospel meaning? I think both, actually. I think okay. quite a lot of the material that came out as gospel-centered or gospel-driven, whatever that was, I think a lot of it was not actually gospel-centered in, in the way you might define that term, or the way uh, a Jerry Bridges or someone might define the term. Um, I think people thought it was, but what they really meant was they were going to talk about the gospel at some point in their book, and then just say everything else kind of flows out of that. But there wasn't a clear connection about being gospel-centered. In fact, I think the concept of gospel-centered is abstract enough that it I'm not even sure it's all that useful. I think it's a mm a term that may fade away and hopefully be replaced with something that's clearer. The Church got along really well without it for the first 2,000 years. <laughs> um, if you do a, a search, and you can go and do, an, in Google's Ngram Viewer, I think it's called, and you can search for terms, yeah. how, how they've been used in publishing over the years, and you'll see that term did not show up until the early 2000s, uh, and then suddenly there was this explosion of it. Um, so it is a new term, even if it describes an older reality, and people who use it are drawing back to Jerry Bridges and then all the way back to John Owen and pulling in threads from all of that. Yeah. Um, so certainly the notion that what we do has to be based on the gospel of Jesus Christ and pertain to the gospel, we've drawn out of the gospel, all of those good things. But the term itself, I'm just not sure it's as helpful as maybe the last generation's terms, where they would talk about being biblical or something, like drawing what you do out of the Bible, drawing who you are out of the Bible. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the pushback to that is just that the way people use biblical to say something is biblical is <laughs> right. so amorphous and, and, and vague as well. 
Um, and I wanted this is just spitballing, and it's just something that occurred to me, and it's so it's not something that I've been thinking about for a while. But I wonder if the you know when we refer to gospel centrality and the implications of it, whether for sanctification or um, gospel-centered preaching and teaching, uh, we're talking about things like you know kinds of um, of a hermeneutic, and we're talking about um, spiritual dynamics that really are drawn from kind of the reformational tradition. And I wonder if there's a use for the you know, for the phraseology today in a way that doesn't put up barriers like saying, I believe in, in the Reformed, uh, you know, sanctification as it is found in the Reformed confessions or, um, you know, things like that where people who may not identify as Reformed, uh, you know, they're not you know, Presbyterian or they're not even Lutheran or, you know, something like that. They can buy into gospel centered because it's it's you know it's talking about you know it's a particular um, you know theology of change and um, of salvation that doesn't have the kind of denominational or traditional uh, nomenclature on it and I and so I wonder if there's some advantage to it that way but I you know certainly see you know in in the same way that you know I used to walk through a Christian bookstore and there was a sign that said gospel music and you wondered is the, is the other music not gospel, you know, like where gospel just became a genre or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me give you an example. I think okay. I can give you an example of what I'm seeing. Um, uh, an example would be a gospel culture okay, or gospel priorities. Those are both just drawn out of an, an article I read recently, and this is by uh, somebody who's, I think, very gospel-centered. So, <laughs> um, But just if, if we start using a phrase in our churches, like, we need to have gospel priorities, or, you know, maybe in our slogan or somewhere on our website, we're saying, come here for a gospel culture, or we want to display to the world a gospel culture. That's where I'm not sure there's any significant or useful information being carried by the word gospel. My fear is people who love the gospel most and would defend the gospel best, are actually in some way cheapening the word by attaching it to everything in that way. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you can respond to that. Yeah, well, um, so I remember, um, well, it came out about eight, yeah, it came out in 2011, my book, Gospel Wakefulness, right? Um, <laughs> which, <Yeah. laughs> and in that book, uh, I think towards the end, it may have been in the, in the, in the conclusion, um, I related a conversation I had with a friend that, you know, back then, so it would have been 2009, 2010, where he was sharing the same concern. And his concern was that we are using the word gospel like the Smurfs used the word Smurfy, where everything is, you know, well, that's a Smurfy pie. And that was a Smurf. And Smurf becomes this sort of junk drawer word. Um, and he said gospel is becoming the same way. Everything's gospel this, gospel that. It was, it, it, it's, you know, almost identical to the concern that you're sharing right now. And so I, you know, kind of addressed that, you know, not that I, you know, addressed it definitively, but um, it, it's not a new concern. And um, I do think it's a genuine, um, I think there's a genuine danger to it, right? It, if we're not actually uh, teaching in gospel-centered ways, we do run the risk um, if we're not uh, substantiating our, our nomenclature where it's just buzzwords, but I wonder, do you sense any any fatigue about this um, in the publishing world among readership? Um, do you think that's going away, or do you think it's it's getting worse in some way? Uh, I think there's 
some fatigue, but I'd say more than fatigue is just a lack of understanding. Okay. I don't think gospel hyphen centered is a clear enough term, a defined enough term. It's got no historical rootedness. So I don't think people really get it. So people have used it in an attempt to be, um, to, in an attempt to try and say the right thing. People genuinely want to, or uh, they use it as a marker of identity. But I don't think many people really understand it. And I've I've heard lots of explanations of it that I just don't think are all that helpful or all that useful okay. in daily life. But there's maybe better tools we have as Christians that can guide us in you know, moments of hesitation or moments of decision or moments where we need clarity than to be gospel-centered. That, that's what I'm finding. That's what I think we'll probably find over time, and I may be dead wrong. Okay. Um, but, you know, I always do like to look back and... As I said before, we had 2,000 years of church history before people started using this term or anything really like it. Yeah. Well, I mean, if if you were to define it yourself, what would you say is is you know gospel centrality? My understanding is that the the way it would most commonly be used is that it would be asking how does the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ pertain to this. And so that might mean in marriage counseling, if I want to have a gospel-centered marriage or help other people with a gospel-centered marriage, I'd be in that moment as they describe their joys or their triumphs, talking about, okay, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, how does that in some way connect with them here? How does that guide them? How does that strengthen them? What does that call them to? Um, that's that's my understanding of it, Yeah, and I'd be interested in yours. Yeah, well, I you know, I... I agree with that. For me, the practical implications, one of the things that I'm concerned about with the, especially the young men training for ministry um, in in the residency that I direct at our church, as, you know, I'm trying to train them in gospel-centered ministry, my concern is that, that it's just a buzzword or it's a tribal identifier, and if they're not uh, clued into and, and sort of read up on the major implications for ministry, which for me are are primarily twofold. One, how do people change? And secondly, how do we preach and teach the scriptures in a faithful way, in a biblical way, I guess you would say. Um, and so how do people change? Well, how does the Bible teach that people change? The I believe the scriptures um, reveal to us that people change by the power of the Holy Spirit um, through their belief in Jesus Christ. And so um, you know, Paul in, in Titus chapter 2 saying that it's grace that trains us to renounce unrighteousness. Um, or in Philippians uh, 2, that we, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it is God who is working in us. So all of those are gospel-centered applications of either sanctification or even in conversion, right? We're looking at kind of the Reformed uh, soteriology in that sense that, um, you know, we it, it was a monergistic regeneration, um, you know, so that's a gospel-centered view of, of the conversion experience or of salvation. Um, and so how people change, right? Or 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, it's by beholding the glory of Christ that we are transformed from one degree of glory into another. So that to me is 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 a major emphasis. I don't want people to say I, I'm gospel-centered because they're identifying with a tribe or simply because they subscribe to Reformed theology. I want them to know the implications for ministry, which is how is it that the people in your pews in your counseling room, across the table from you in discipleship um, situations. How is it that they grow in Christ? And I think it's uh, it's by the power of the gospel. 
And then secondly, of course, um, how we preach and teach the scriptures. Do we you know, teach them with um, the finished work of Christ as the climactic note, uh, not that there aren't many practical implications and imperatives to be obeyed, um, but are those things ordered around the central fact of Christianity, which is that uh, the work of salvation is accomplished totally by Christ? Uh, so those are, I think, you know, the two dominant um, themes to me. But um, I do think you're well, right. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds to me like you're describing Reformed theology, but <laughs> labeling it gospel-centered. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Like what you're talking about, yeah. how we change. That's just good, solid Reformed theology. You don't need to be gospel-centered for that. You just have to be well, grounded in, but you might, in that doctrine. Tim, if you're a Southern Baptist, you might you might need to be. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because the big, R, the big R word just carries so much baggage. <laughs> yeah, oh, I totally understand that. Um, but it doesn't sound like it's carrying any new information. No, and I hope it like isn't. Different I, I, way of... Yeah of looking at the world. Maybe it's just collecting stuff. And I know what we're what we're fighting in Christian subcultures here is that therapeutic moralistic deism stuff, right? Like we're very clear that much of what passes for Christian thinking in the world is anything but and that people are really just giving out moralisms and the the usual message people get when they go and talk to their pastor is try harder, try harder, try harder. And so we want to come back and point people to the gospel, to the sufficiency of Christ, and to the finished work of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, the future return of Christ. Like we want to have people with a full-orbed understanding of what Christ, who Christ is, and what Christ has done. Um, I just think all of that is carried very well by our Reformed theology. So yeah. gospel centeredness just seems to add another term that maybe. I just don't see what it really adds to the equation, other than maybe defusing some of the the SBC bombs or something, or, <laughs> which I understand. Yeah, well, and and I don't think it's just that. You know, I mean, there's multiple traditions as well, um, but I also think now, like on the other end, if if you're if you are in a historically reformed tradition, um, you know, you, there are some who object to those who are not. Using the language, I'm, you know, I subscribe to Reformed theology. Well, no, you don't. If you if you're not a Pado Baptist, if you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it it kind of gets around the you know the traditional or the historical label. But I I hope it doesn't bring anything new. You said it, you know it, it doesn't bring anything new, and you know the terminology itself is new as you mentioned. But I really hope it's not innovating any any theology there, but is just found as a as a means of um, perhaps I I don't know. You know, I I sense it's a gospel recovery movement, but I I'm sympathetic to the concern that um, the gospel recovery is shifting into a gospel assumption, um, which is just the you know the first step from really losing um, you know the content of of the gospel. Um, so yeah, I I'm, I think I'm I'm with you um, in general. And it may just be the specifics. I, I sense a fatigue um, in the publishing world. And w- what's interesting is, so, you know, I wrote a book that was published as Gospel Deeps. The original title was called was Grace Upon Grace. That was my title. And Crossway, which is published that book, um, it, it was a follow-up to Gospel Wakefulness. They thought, let's put a gospel, you know, so that this is in the height of the, of, of the gospel-centered zeitgeist and, and all of that sort of thing. So let's do... Yeah. Gospel Deeps, and I thought, well, that's cool. You know, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I like the title. I, I didn't object to the title at all, but that was a time where that was when you would do that. 
more lately, um, as I've, you know, if I propose a book that has the word gospel, either in the title or subtitle, I'm hearing from publishers, hey, that's a, that's really kind of played out. Um, there's so many gospel books. And so I do sense that there's a, a kind of fatigue um, about it. And, um, you know, so I, I don't know where it's going. I don't know if you know where it's going, but... Um, I think where I don't want it to go is that we become people who just consume gospel stuff. I think that's a danger we have to be concerned about, that we just like gospel. It's a key word for us. It's yeah. a buzzword. We just want to. We want it to be on our mugs. We want it to be on our, our book spines as we put them in our book, bookcase, etc. Like it's just our, our marker of identity. I think if we're going to use gospel, we should make sure that it's conveying substantial information and information that's really consistent with the Bible's empathy. So I'm 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 really okay with people using gospel in their <laughs> in their book titles. Um, you know, I, I think it's fine. But my concern is that it is more of a buzzword that we're putting it in to generate sales, and yet we're playing with a word that's very very precious, yes. very very important. And I don't want to water down that that word. Um, you know, I think the same would be true of, of a lot of different words that we use in the Christian in the Christian world. Uh, we just need to protect our language. Uh, our language really does carry substantial meaning, and uh, I think we've got to be careful with it. Yeah, that's a good word. Tim, um, what's next for you? What do you have on the horizon? I know you have this other, you have the Visual Theology book coming out. Is there anything else? Yep. Uh, no, uh, Visual Theology, the second one came out uh, a little while ago. The next book that will be out uh, will be the epic one, the uh, church history book, okay. World Travel slash Church History. And that's it. Yeah, with my current health challenges, I'm not starting any new writing projects or book projects, and I'm uh, pretty happy to have the break. In fact, I'm really scaling back in life, which has been nice. Not that I was way overdoing it or anything, but just necessity has dictated. I, I cut things down at least a little bit on, on the writing front, and it's been, it's been quite nice. Yeah, good. Tim, thanks, brother, for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Yeah, we have been, and uh, I will continue to pray for your health. Uh, we've been speaking with Tim Challies of the TheVenerableChallies.com and author of numerous books. Uh, if you're one of the eight people left who do not subscribe to Tim's posts or follow him online, uh, first of all, what's wrong with you? Uh, but secondly, you should do that because his content is always solid, it's always thoughtful, and it's exceedingly helpful. Uh, he really is a blessing uh, to the church, gospel-centered tribe and beyond. And as always, dear listener, if you like the podcast, please share it with your friends. Give us a good review on iTunes. Every little bit helps. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, managing editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.